Welcome to Parallax by Anka Kalra, a podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology and the best from the US Cardiology Review. Published every second Monday, Anka Kalra, MD, interventional cardiologist at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio, USA, speaks with legendary cardiologists, reviews late-breaking trials, and interviews authors of our latest and best US cardiology review articles. We call them hashtag audio articles. Parallax is the effect whereby the position or direction of an object appears to differ when viewed from different positions. So this podcast is your fix of reliable updates on all things cardiology by someone from a non-traditional background who is always looking at the industry from a new angle. Now, here's your host, Anka Kalra, MD. Hello, everyone. Um, I have the honor and pleasure of having um, with us on Parallax today um, a guest from um, across the seven seas, uh, you know, trying to sound poetic or philosophical. Uh, but I, um, I've obviously read her work um, and um, I've been following her work, um, which is, you know, has been phenomenal. Uh, I'm sure all of us have been um, in, in the field of cardiovascular medicine. And I had the honor and the, and the privilege of actually meeting her in person uh, at uh, TCT this year. Um, in San Francisco. Um, so uh, without uh, much further ado, um, uh, please welcome uh, on the podcast, uh, Rosh Alami. Um, Dr. Alami is an academic interventional cardiologist at Imperial College of London uh, in London, United Kingdom. And um, again, from the entire team at Parallax, Rasha, it's our pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Um, so no, it's, uh, uh, we've been wanting to do this, uh, with you and, um, you know, our team had identified, uh, you as one of the guests, uh, early on as just that, uh, it has taken us that long to schedule uh, a conversation with you. So I'm going to just dive right in and, uh, you know, first of all, congratulate you on Orbita and on other papers that, you know, you've published in, in the field of revascularization and stable ischemic heart disease. Um, so before we, we dive into the science, just uh, tell us a bit about yourself, about your background, and uh, how you um, you know how you became the Rasha we now know. Uh, I think it would be fascinating for our audience audience to learn about your journey. Okay, thank you very much. No problems. Uh, well, it's obviously an honour to be into you today. Um, so I mean, I don't know it, to talk about my journey. Uh, it sounds a bit grand, but. Um, I'm uh, obviously an international cardiologist in London. I was actually born in Liverpool in the north of the UK. Uh, so two parents who both have PhDs, um, one in maths and one in chemistry. So no doctors in my family in medicine, but, you know, doctors in academia. Um, and I'm originally from Iraq. Um, I basically grew up in the north of England and then went, studied in Oxford University and then went on to do my clinical training after preclinical training in Oxford. I went to U University College London to do my clinical training. Um, then qualified as a doctor and really stayed mostly in London, but kind of travelled in the around the UK doing um, my training. And then um, started my interventional cardiology and general cardiology training on the Northwest London training rotation. As part of that, I obviously did interventional fellowships at the Hammersmith Hospital, which is really where my base has been for many, many years. Um, and I also did a period, a year's 
an international fellowship with the great Antonio Colombo in Milan, which was kind of a fantastic time to learn about research and become a little bit more academically minded. And then after that period, I came back to the UK and not long later started planning my PhD with um, Justin Davies and Professor Daryl Francis, so a very kind of leading academic cardiologist. Um, and then, of course, my PhD was the orbital trial. So that took us well, four years. It was obviously quite an endeavour. Um, and since that time and since kind of the results and all the rest of it, uh, my uh, career path has really changed a lot. I think I always presumably thought I was going to be mostly a clinical cardiologist and an interventional cardiologist. But over time, obviously, I've become more interested in academia. And then because my PhD really got my interest stirred and has really kind of redirected me. So now my job is very much 50% academic work, 50% clinical work at Imperial College London and at Imperial NHS. And obviously focusing on stable coronary artery disease predominantly and kind of the study of ischemia um, and how best to diagnose and treat our patients. That's kind of the journey. <laughs> Yeah, no, thanks for uh, taking us uh, through the journey. It's, it's fascinating when I mean, you've trained at phenomenal places. Um, and, um, you know, I, when I was in London uh, last year in, in December for the uh, London School of Economics program, I really wanted to take a train ride to Oxford, but, you know, it just didn't happen. Hopefully, um, when I'm back in, in June of 2020, uh, I'll uh, hit you up on uh, maybe, uh, you know, touring Oxford. I, you know, it'll be phenomenal to... Yeah. To, to see the place. It's a, um, it's, a, it's a gorgeous place. It's got a lot of history. Yeah, I'm sure it does. So, you know, just uh, uh, circling back to Orbita, um, you know, it's um, so what's really fascinating is, you know, how um, you converted um, your, your PhD and, and project into, um, you know, just um, a, a practice changing, if you will, uh, paper, uh, just to bring, uh, I think, you know, for, for the listenership and for the audience, I think um, I, I haven't really seen uh, or listened uh, to stable ischemic heart disease revascularization being, you know, talked about uh, w with that degree of passion, you know, obviously early on with, with the courage, but then I think it sort of reinvigorated um, a lot of the emotion and the sentiment uh, that I think courage had brought up, uh, you know, early on. So. Um, what was the uh, motivation to do a trial like Orbita? Uh, I mean, I'm sure you'll talk a little bit about Daryl Francis here, but w w what w what led to um, the genesis of the Orbita trial and your PhD? Yeah, so the reality is, I mean, obviously in designing the trial, we had absolutely no idea it would be so controversial. Um, we very much thought it would be a positive trial for interventional cardiology and PCI because we're all interventional cardiologists. Um, but what kind of happened and, and how it came about was I came to a point in my career where I decided I wanted to do a PhD uh, and we were trying to work out what my PhD program would be and in fact I was very much, I did my PhD at quite an unusual stage in the UK, mostly people would do their PhD very much slap bang in the middle of training or around about that time and for a variety of reasons my PhD came towards the end of my training um, and I was in the lab actually by then kind of independently doing endoplasty doing a PCI procedure with in fact Daryl Francis sitting outside being my kind of supervising consultant but not actually in the lab with me. 
And having stented, and I still remember it, a kind of mid-circumflex lesion in a patient who had chest pain, I came out and kind of said, you know, what do you think about the dog? And he said, um, you know, yeah, great, whatever, as kind of Carol would say. And he said, well, why did you bother to do that? And I said, well, because the patient had pain, and, you know, and they had this ischemic test that was called and we were realising that placebo controlled trials were really important and he's obviously been quite engaged with that debate and for many years has predicted that the blinded results might be quite different to the unblinded results and so then we designed Orbiter basically and so you know I wrote the protocol uh, along with obviously my supervisors and then I must admit you know it seems like a quite impossible PhD programme and Daryl still says that at all phases through the years of me recruiting all these patients he kept being kind of a bit amazed that I was still doing it because he thought I'd just give up. And uh, when, you know, obviously when it was published and when we completed, uh, he still then he told me, he said, I never thought you'd actually do it. And I said, I wish you'd said that to me years ago because it was really quite a painful process. Um, but, you know, then the results obviously were a massive surprise. And if there was Anything that I can kind of tell my younger self now, it was perhaps not to be so quite quite so naive about research. I don't think we'd ever imagine that the impact of the research would be quite as it was. To be honest, we hadn't really thought about it being negative. We certainly hadn't thought about this kind of new social media age and the engagement that people have with research now that they definitely didn't have at the time of courage. And we didn't really think about kind of, you know, the lay media and the implications on your, of your results on a much wider audience. Um, so, you know, now I can kind of look back and think, sort of see why things turned out the way they did, but it was all a bit unexpected at the time. Uh, wow. Uh, so let me, um, I'll start with an anecdote and then um, I'll ask you more about what you do in your clinical practice. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I, I sort of know, um, you know, because um, I've, I've sort of um, um, listened to other talks uh, which uh, happened, you know, following Orbita, but, um, you know, because we have you on the show, I, um, I'll ask you the question for the, for the listenership. So the anecdote is the Orbita, the story, I, I think, was, was covered in, uh, in the New York Times. And um, mm-hmm. I remember... Um, this was at my, while I was at my former institution, I would do procedures in the cat lab on a Thursday. And I think the story in the New York times came out on Wednesday. And I remember my secretary getting a phone call from one of my patients in whom I'd planned uh, a revascularization procedure, PCI. Um, you know, and this patient was uh, still having Canadian cardiovascular system, class two angina on uh, maximal anti-anginal therapy, um, you know, as maximally tolerated by the patient. And, and the patient, uh, you know, had questions about why he should get the, get the stent. Um, so he ended up uh, canceling that procedure. Um, and I, you know, sort of requested him to, to come back and see me in clinic. And maybe we could have a detailed conversation about the findings of the orbital trial. Um, which leads me to my question to you is how, how has Orbita changed your practice, you know, in light of what was already known, uh, following publication of courage, you know, which basically told us that 
PCI does not lead to a mortality benefit um, or prevents future events from occurring. Um, you know, Orbita sort of took it a step further um, in, in demonstrating, you know, at least uh, for, for, a very, for a very short duration of follow-up, that it may be questionable that PCI would improve symptoms. How, how does um, Orbita change your practice? So, you know, I think, I mean, obviously the results of Orbita have been discussed kind of to death. I always find it really interesting because people tell me, you know, their patients have come to them and talked to them about the Orbita trial. And predominantly, I think that has been in the U.S. Um, where obviously the media coverage was really quite startling. In the UK, I must admit, I have had, I can't even think of more than two patients that have ever discussed Orbita with me. And I think that's probably because they've kind of Googled me ahead of seeing me in the clinic, as opposed to having heard about the result in our media. Um, but in terms of how it changes what I do, well, firstly, you know, I don't believe the trial is absolutely perfect. No trial is perfect. And there are obviously limitations, and we're now conducting Orbita too. But I do think actually we've learned something, some quite important aspects from Orbita. One is that I think we have to think about symptoms very carefully. The type of people we recruited in Orbita, and you know, I say we because this was a big you know, a group of investigators, many of whom are very, very good friends of mine, you know, throughout the South and throughout, throughout the South of England who had basically referred patients who were essentially on clinical waiting list or about to be referred on to clinical waiting list for angioplasty. So they were the, your normal standard patients um, who had presented with a range of symptoms, some of which were absolutely classical, typical angina symptoms, and others might be angina equivalent symptoms like restlessness on exertion or something that you may attribute to their epicardial coronary disease. They, in the main, had very severe angiographic and coronary disease, and 94% of them had an ischemic test that was positive. And so these are people waiting for stents, and then you randomize them to have placebo or stent, and we suddenly found, you know, a much smaller difference between the two groups in terms of exercise time and symptoms than we'd expected. And now I think that's maybe because there are lots of symptoms out there that are not caused by their epicardial disease, and they um, Potentially, those patients stand, obviously, to benefit less from treatment of their epicardial disease. But when we see the angiographic stenosis, we attribute everything to that. I also think that actually the link between ischemia and symptoms is quite a lot less straightforward and linear than we might have expected. And we're learning that from our subsequent papers. Um, so now what I do when I see a patient with stable coronary disease, is firstly, I really think about those symptoms, and I think about whether those symptoms are going to be potentially treated by antiplastics. I also think about their ischemic burden, and I still believe potentially that those people with more ischemia may benefit more, and we certainly saw that in the second paper, that ischemia benefit is greater than those patients who have much lower ischemic burden on FSR or IFR in the Catalan. And so there's but what I also think is once I decide to put in the stents and perform the PCI, I've got to deliver an element of placebo because there is some placebo component to what we do. So if I show them the images and show them how much better that endographic disease looks because of the stent and how the arteries are now normalized, I also kind of counsel them as to the fact that not all of their symptoms may go away, but these are the symptoms I expect to go away. I hope 
that they're less likely to come back. But in essence, you know, I do find that I'm a bit more conservative now. So the types of mid-circumflex lesions that I was potentially stenting a few years ago, you know, I probably don't do as much of that now. Whereas the very tight proximal LADs in 50-year-old patients who don't want to have anti-angina therapy for the rest of their lives, you know, those are still people I'm stenting. And in the hope that, you know, there's a trial somewhere that shows some benefit. <laughs> Yeah, wow. Um, no, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a complicated disease and I don't think it's got a straightforward answer really. Yes. I mean, so, um, you know, I, the reason I wowed was, um, um, you know, the, the description, uh, that you gave about, uh, the nonlinear relationship between, um, our perception of ischemia and its relationship with, uh, symptoms. And, uh, you know, I think the, the follow-up paper, correct me if I'm wrong, but w- was this follow-up paper published in JAMA Internal Medicine? Um, no, it's published in Speculation. And, yes. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, and basically what we did there was we took patients, so we always plan to do a series of analysis, and, and I'll tell you about this analysis and also want an upcoming analysis, which will be published in a few weeks' time. So what we did was we, all of the patients in Orbital, vast majority had IFR and FFR measured in the cath lab but as you might remember the physicians were blinded to those results Mm -hmm. and that was because in reality what we were trying to look for we presumed PCI would definitely have an overriding benefit over um, placebo but that what we could do next was try and find a cut point for angina relief based on FFR and IFR and it for the first time in a blind trial. So in order to find that cut point we needed to be able to recruit a range of patients and so what we then did in the secondary analysis was we stratified patients based on their IFR and SFR and we saw the relationship to the various endpoints of orbiter based on their pre-randomization FFR or IFR. And the only tight relationship was we, that we found was that the lower your SFR and IFR, the greater the placebo-controlled improvement you would have in stress echo ischemia in the PCI arm. So there was a tight relationship between one ischemic metric and another ischemic metric, but or another test for ischemia. But then we found no relationship between the baseline SFR and IFR and the placebo-controlled improvement or change in exercise time or any of the symptom endpoints. And that might be because we were underpowered, because of course the effect size was so small on any of those endpoints in the primary paper. It might also be because there's not such a tight link between ischemia and symptoms and exercise time. And in fact, what we're presenting next, and I'll be presenting at AHA, in fact, also with a simultaneous publication in circulation in a couple of weeks' time, is the stress echoes justified analysis. So this time we'll take again the same group of patients, we'll look at their pre-randomization stress echo data and see whether stratification based on BSE is senior, will again bear any relationship to their endpoints in orbital which is kind of interesting because it relates to the ischemia trial, which will actually be presented the same day. Um, and obviously, um, the results are embargoed at the moment, so I can't tell you anything about our paper, but you'll find the results in a few weeks' time. Um, sure. Um, which um, actually I think is a great segue um, to have you talk about uh, the ischemia trial. Um, it's obviously been discussed and talked about and has been touted to be the trial that may change how 
we practice cardiology, how we practice modern cardiology, how we revascularize uh, stable ischemic heart disease. So uh, talk to our audience a little bit about uh, the ischemia trial and uh, what you anticipate the results to be. Um, you know, the podcast will um, be broadcast um, after the ischemia results have been published. Um, you know, obviously, I, I don't want you to break embargo and and have this conversation with me here because, you know, we're still recording before the results of these ischemia trials have been presented and published. But, you know, talk to the audience a little bit about um, the genesis of ischemia, how how you think ischemia is important um, um, and uh, what you anticipate the results to be in light of what you've already found uh, in your patients uh, with Orbita. Yeah, so, I mean, interestingly, I mean, I'm one of the co-moderators on the, on the session for the Ischemia Late Breaker, and in fact, I still don't know the results. So, you know, that there's no, I, will, I am just guessing when I kind of talk about the results. Sure. Um, but I think Ischemia is very, you know, an incredibly anticipated trial because on the basis of courage, there were a number of unanswered questions. And obviously at the time, many people said, well, does this change our, does courage change our practice and there were lots of people speaking to the perceived limitations of courage and why another trial was needed. Now obviously it's been an incredible undertaking for those investigators. I mean, you know, recruiting over 5,000 patients in over 35 countries all over the world obviously has been a major feat. So they are to be congratulated for that for sure. Um, it has also been an incredibly expensive trial, and many people have talked to the fact that you know it cost over a hundred million dollars. Um, and so, it is important for us to really think about the results. I think predominantly because if we don't think about the results of such an expensive trial with so many patients recruited, or if we just dismiss the results if we don't like the answer, then it kind of puts into question why we practice evidence-based medicine. You know, what's the point of doing all of these? trial if we're not going to listen to the results you know they can't just be used as a mechanism to promote the investigators or to prevent and promote institutions it's important that we think about what they mean now i think there were some parts of that design that were at the ischemic design that are just you know are, are great the fact that they try to work out whether there is a relationship between ischemia revascularization and hard endpoint was courageous and exactly what we need to know because there isn't, you know, all the data that's out there at the moment is observational and doesn't really tell us if there's a, a strict link. Um, I think it was great that they recruit patients with moderate or severe ischemia. They then have a blinded CT so they are randomized prior to anyone knowing anything further about their anatomy and of course in the invasive strategy they have a cath and in conservative strategy they have no further cath and hopefully that means that they obviously exclude the left main lesions, but that people aren't suddenly not randomizing patients with tight proximal LAD lesions or you know, lesions in cardiovascular vessels. And many people said that in courage, those patients were excluded. In fact, when you speak to the courage, they say actually many of those patients did make it into the trial. But in any case, you know, I think having randomization prior to CAF is a, is a very, very good strategy. And of course, the endpoints of the trial were initially said to be, um, there was a composite endpoint for which they got their funding. Then I think they very ambitiously said that the endpoint would just be death and MI. And you probably read paper that I was a co-author on 
discussing the issues with maybe changing the endpoint over time, not so much changing it, but going back to their original um, five composite endpoints uh, with, with, you know, resuscitated cardiac arrest, hospitalization from stable angina and heart failure. And, and I think that particularly those hospitalization endpoints are subject to issues with, because of unblinding and they may potentially be biased and, and may change the results. In terms of the results, um, I think it has taken them such a long time to recruit. They obviously initially planned to recruit even more than the five, over 5,000 patients from they recruited. And obviously, to be powered for death and MI, they needed many more patients than 5,000. And so I think it will be interesting. To, I think it will be unlikely that we will see a difference in terms of the hard endpoints, death and MI, between revascularization and the conservative arm. Uh, but, you know, of course, I stand to be corrected. Um, on the quality of life endpoint, things like symptoms, and uh, I think it's possible that we might find that the invasive strategy shows a difference. I might caution how we interpret that, because, of course, this is an unblinded trial, and, you know, obviously I feel that for subjective endpoints, we need blinded trials with placebo control to really know the answer. Um, and then it'll be interesting to see what happens with the CKD presentation, which is, of course, a different cohort for whom, you know, these patients have very, um, uh, have very high risk profiles and are much more likely to have, I would have thought, more likely to have a difference between the invasive arm and the conservative arm. But again, we'll see. And I think it really depends on whether they recruited the right kind of patient and whether the antiplasty or the revascularization by whichever form was done correctly. I think also the medical therapy will have a massive impact on the results. Um, they've already presented the baseline data back, and we can see that obviously there had to be modifications in terms of how ischemia was analyzed. They planned initially for that to all be done by the core lab, but in the end, some centers in the end did that themselves and then had it adjudicated by the core lab. I wonder what difference that might make to the results. I don't know. I suspect that the results will be very nuanced with, you know, a kind of grey result rather than a sort of slam dunk one way or the other. But we'll see. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. So let me, I'm going to run um, three specific clinical scenarios by you and, um, you know, see how you, um, how you would take care of these patients. These are hypothetical patients, um, you know, but obviously um, patients that you and I see um, in, in our clinics, in our, in our daily practice. So one is a, a patient, um, you know, a gentleman in his mid forties, he's, um, has uh, the traditional cardiovascular risk factors, you know, essential hypertension, diabetes mellitus, um, diabetic dyslipidemia. He um, has been having symptoms of exertional intolerance and angina. And uh, the primary care physician or the GP, if you will, obtained um, a stress test, a stress echocardiogram, which showed that there was evidence for inducible ischemia in the territory of the left circumflex. So this gentleman is now being referred to see a cardiologist, a consultant cardiologist like you and I, and um, comes to see us in our clinic and has not been initiated on uh, anti-anginal therapy, just takes a baby aspirin, takes a, a statin, high-intensity statin. How would you approach this patient? Would you, um, you know, assuming these are stable anginal symptoms, 
and not uh, there's no evidence for unstable angina how do you how do you manage this patient in the office and what triggers a visit to the cath lab so um these days what I do is I must admit I'm I am quite a lot more thoughtful about anti angina medications. So I saw in August just even as we were recruiting some of the unbelievable symptomatic improvements that we had just with anti angina therapy. Of course, some of those anti angina therapies have got significant side effects and a forty year old man may not want to take beta blockers or, you know, nitrate for the rest of his life. But I, with these patients at the moment, what I'm doing is introducing antianginal therapy. And predominantly, if I have evidence of ischemia, bringing them to the cath lab. The reason being, and perhaps, I'm, you know, I, I don't, the research isn't there to back this up, but I still believe that if patients have a high burden of ischemia, then there's like, there is likely to be a relationship with their long-term outcomes and their risk. The difficulty I have is that we haven't seen from any um, prospective trials that that's necessarily related. So, you know, I may have to change that thought process once I see the results of ischemia. Um, the other issue that I have is a 40-year-old man usually wants the problem, what they perceive to be fixed. Mm-hmm. They don't necessarily call the fact that you're going to leave them walking around with this lesion that's not got any better. Now, you kind of present me with a circumflex lesion, and very rarely do we see events that are circumflex, and you know, many would argue it's not really prognostic. But if I had an ischemia on a stress like, oh, I'd want to know if it was a very big dominant cirque or they kind of, you know, hardly existent right coming artery system. And so I probably would bring them to cath lab. I probably would want more evidence for ischemia, so I'd probably do invasive physiology. And then I'd work out what I want to do. Um, difficulty with a man like that is, say he becomes asymptomatic on medical therapy, do I do nothing more? Um, at the moment, Many of those patients I'm still sensing because I say maybe I'm doing it for more than just symptomatic relief. But I might have to change what I think after I see the results of the Sure. And, you know, I, would that, would that uh, response or answer change if I were to say the ischemia was uh, in the territory of, say, the right coronary or the left anterior descending? Well, I think when it's in the, I mean, I think predominantly for the LAD, I still believe that those young patients with tight proximal LAD probably stand to, to gain the most from revascularization than anyone else. Mm-hmm. Again, <laughs> I haven't got the data there, but that's still my current belief that, you know, um, I think where the data, where it might change, and maybe that's what you're about to come to next, is if you tell me that the age of this patient is something very different. If you now say this patient was 85 years old, mm-hmm. then I might think differently about this patient, if I'm honest. I might think, you know, is, is there really a prognostic benefit to revascularization? Not so much. And can I restore their quality of life and their, reduce their symptom burden by just the anti-anginal therapy without necessarily exposing them to a risk of a procedure and then I do change my therapy actually now I'm not being ageist about it but you know I think about other stuff comorbidity you know is this patient potentially you know housebound are they you know all these other things that come into play as our patients get more elderly mm-hmm. you know I'm going to think about all of that sure um and then you know one final scenario and then you know that'll be um I think uh, the conclusion to uh, what I think has been um a fascinating podcast and 
again, Rasha, thank you so much for, for your time. And then that is what, what do you do with patients who get, um, the heart scan, which, you know, is you and I know it's, uh, the coronary artery calcium scan, um, for, uh, you know, prevention or for preventative purposes and find out that their coronary calcium score is, is high, you know, certainly, you know, at least the appropriate use criteria guidelines in the U S state that if it's over 400, um, you know, you it's, it's, it's appropriate to then take these patients to the cat lab. Um, but how, how are you, um, how are you managing, um, abnormal coronary artery calcium scan scores? What, what do you do with these patients? Cause they're otherwise totally asymptomatic. They're totally quote unquote healthy. Um, and, um, are exercising, living vital lives. Um, and then, you know, a friend recommends them, Hey, why don't you get this heart scan? Um, it's supposed to tell you whether you have heart disease, you know, in, in very late terms and lo and behold, they land up with these coronary artery calcium scores, which are in the 400s, 500s range. How are you managing these patients? So, you know, I'll tell you, <laughs> this speaks to the difference between your healthcare system and ours. Those patients really don't make it. This just doesn't happen in the NHS. It really doesn't. It, you know, it might happen occasionally in our private healthcare system. But in the UK, that element of looking for disease you don't have yet or haven't presented with yet just kind of doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. So we don't do calcium scores as a certainly not as a routine and certainly not as a kind of screening tool. Um, if a patient has a CT with me in the NHS, they'll also, they'll be having that CT for more than just their calcium score, also for that, the anatomy, and it will be triggered by symptoms or, you know, a reason for me to believe that they may have had an event or something in the past. So we w- I wouldn't be screening these asymptomatic patients. And if I... In a kind of now put myself in your shoes, and I have an asymptomatic patient who came with a score like this. I don't think there's an evidence out there for us now taking that patient to care. Mm-hmm. At a kind of halfway house, obviously, I'd be considering risk prevention medication as standard for those patients, and obviously, that you know, starting on the statin, etc., and thinking about what else I need to change in terms of that risk. But if I really needed to do something, I'd probably do an ischemic test because. The only reason to even consider revascularizing that patient would be if you still believe that we need to reduce their ischemic burden, I think. And mm-hmm. so, therefore, I'd want evidence that they have ischemia. And I would rely on a non-invasive test rather than putting them through the risk of an invasive test for that. But, you know, I think that practice of medicine is, is, is very different in a... Um, publicly funded healthcare system versus the privately funded healthcare system. And, you know, I don't know what, what you think of that, but I think, you know, the incentives in a public healthcare system to do such tests, well, there aren't any really. And, you know, it would overburden our whole system to do to start doing screening tests in that way. And I'm not sure that there's a benefit for the patients for doing Yes. Um, you know, I agree with you that, um, controversial perhaps, but <laughs> yeah, no, it does. It does. Thank you for, um, thank you for your candor and, and a very honest answer. Uh, I mean, I, I struggled with these, um, subset of patients. Um, now that even aspirin, um, in primary prevention has, um, 
shown to not be of benefit. I think the only medication that we're left with is high-intensity statin therapy in patients who have coronary artery calcium. Um, but, you know, I honestly, I struggle with these, with these patients quite a bit. And um, I, I don't necessarily know what the right answer is. I try not... I try and not taking these patients to the cath lab because, you know, like, like you said, the, the evidence is, is skim to begin with. Certainly, if they haven't had an ischemic evaluation with a selective invasive strategy with, with a stress test, uh, you know, as a gatekeeper to, to being in the cath lab. Um, but, you know, I, I think ischemia is going to tell, tell us a lot more, um, as well as, you know, your, your paper. Um, which is going to get get published in about a couple of weeks. So once again, Rasha, congratulations on on advancing the field and all that you've done on on you know educating us about how we should take care of patients with stable ischemic heart disease. Again, it's been it's been our honor and pleasure having you. You know, from the entire team at Parallax, uh, thank you and and we wish you all the best. Thank you very much. It's been great. Thank you so much. Yeah. All right. Bye bye. Take care. Bye. Dear cardiologists, we want to make this podcast about you and for you. So please email us your critical thoughts, comments and questions at podcast at radcliffe-group.com and visit uscjournal.com for more information. You can also follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram at Radcliffe Cardiology for daily updates. Join thousands of cardiologists and become a Radcliffian by registering to radcliffecardiology.com. You will receive regular newsletters and gain access to hundreds of expert interviews, educational webinars, clinical cases, and peer-reviewed articles from our six medical review journals on general cardiology, interventional cardiology, arrhythmia and electrophysiology, cardiac failure, and vascular and endovascular surgery. Thank you.